0: Welcome to Shopify Masters, the podcast brought to you by Shopify.
1: And welcome to the Bushbomb miniseries.
0: My name is Shuang Esther Shan. I am one of the hosts of Shopify Masters.
1: And I'm David Gaylord, Shopify's merchant in residence and Bushbomb's co-founder.
0: In this episode, we are chatting about all things marketing.
1: Awesome. All right, let's get into it.
0: Yeah. So David, how do you even begin marketing a pubic oil? And how did you guys come up with branding a name for Bush Bomb?
1: So the the name actually just usually when you're coming up with a name, it takes a long time. But the name was actually the idea that started the business. So my partner said, what about Bush Bomb? And then from there, it just expanded. So it, it was a, a weird one where the, the name started everything and then kind of dominoes uh, fell. Um, but yeah, starting out with marketing is, it's just hard. It's tricky. Um, often you don't even know where to, where to begin.
0: I love the name. I think the alliteration and also it gives um, the user like immediate sense of what it's for. Um, so for marketing, what did you tackle first? And what was some of the first things you guys tried out?
1: One thing I think almost everyone will go through is you don't know what works because you haven't done it, first off. Um, You don't know the unique selling proposition, I'll call it. Um, And at the time, I didn't even know those words. I wasn't even thinking that way at all. Um, So for us, we tried to do a few different things. I think I threw up like a Google ad, which was terribly not successful. Um, I next tried some markets. Um, so we actually went to local uh, kind of craft markets to sell our product and that was probably the best thing we ever did actually in the early days um, so i 'd recommend that to anyone because what it did was you had to sell the product you had to really sell the product and talk to people and you quickly understood and got feedback on what what pitch worked and what one didn 't so if we said we are a Pubic oil company, people were kind of like, okay, that's a bit odd. Um, But then once we changed the wording to, oh, we actually do bikini line skincare, people went, oh, I get that. I understand what you're trying to say and what the purpose is of this product. So that was an early success, was going to trade shows. We sold a little bit. We never really sold a lot, but we learned quickly. And then the next thing that we did, and this was me personally, I was really excited to learn Facebook ads. I tried it a little bit. I dabbled with uh, another company. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to set aside. At the time, it was $500. And I said, this is going to be my money. And I'm going to personally put it into the business to see what happens. And I, I put it in. And I tried Facebook ads. And the first ones, they were mildly successful. But what it did was I quickly got feedback on, oh, oh, this one worked and this one didn't. I wonder Why? Um, and then I started to test more and more. And um, some would say with Facebook ads, there's such, right now, actually, there's not as good of a feedback loop. But back then, it was such a quick feedback loop of success that you would get addicted to almost spending more and trying to do better ads. Because if you're getting success with it, you, you just want to spend more and more. Um, so yeah, that that's kind of the most, the earliest thing we did was the the markets, and then the Facebook ads were pretty successful early on for us.
0: Mm-hmm. It almost feels like a business video game, in a sense, like you're testing out these different ads and seeing which one responds well. Um, do you remember like what the Facebook campaigns looked like and which iteration actually took off a little bit more compared to the other ones?
1: In the early days, I remember we did a lot of uh, product shots with like text overlays. Um, they they had kind of funny, they were more funny and brighter colors. I think one said, we love your pubes, which it was so like jarring, right? So people would click it, it had a high click-through rate. And it, it kind of worked early on, didn't lead to many sales, but it got more traffic to the site. Early on, we made a, a cartoon uh, video, like an explainer video. And it actually worked. Or it worked well. I don't know if it would work now, but in the early days, I think we paid $100 for it, and we ran it on most of our ads for probably about a year. Um, and yeah, it was kind of an odd video that was slightly different. So I still have the opinion, the more jarring of an ad to stand out you can make, the more someone will probably click through and just see what, see what it's all about.
0: Mm-hmm. And I feel like, you know, with social media, there's also a lot of, you know, your own content, whether it's blog or Instagram, that in itself can be a great marketing tool and those could be free um, things that you do that helps you market your business.
1: True. I I, I guess one thing I did forget about the early days is we, we didn't put money in. Like we didn't spend a lot. We weren't growing rapidly. We weren't trying to. We were just trying to get like everything set up and build the business and One of the earliest things I did with marketing, which is paying off today, was we actually wrote a bunch of blog posts with keywords we thought would be helpful. Um, And a lot of people, at times, I hear it as they think, oh, SEO, it's like a waste of time, or, um, oh, I want to do SEO to get sales, whereas SEO is like the longest game you can possibly play. So we wrote blogs 5 years ago and now we're seeing dividends from those blogs. They're getting traffic to the site, they're ranking higher, we're making them better and better and they're getting more traffic. So that was one thing we did. Early on was I wrote so many blogs early and we had people write for us. Like we we did a lot and that that actually has helped a lot now. Um and then one other random marketing thing we did was since we didn't have any money, we didn't spend any money on ads at, at first, I just emailed, I DM'd, I reached out and I said, hey, you've got a listicle of this. Like, you should include this product. You should include this. You should. So I, I spent hours, and like, obviously, I'm not counting the cost of my like time, but I just spent hours just messaging people, trying to build relationships, trying to get in any sort of article we possibly can. Um, and that, that worked out fairly well. We got in a couple, which in the early days was, was pretty huge for us, actually.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think content SEO, so much of it is about building your online reputation and also just making sure that your presence um, is kind of like seen and read throughout in that sphere as well.
1: For sure, yeah. And like a simple one that I see missed often, and, and it to me, to this day, it shocks me how many people don't think about this, is when you go to launch your business, if the simple fact of someone Googling your business name doesn't show you first, then you should really either figure out how to change that quickly, um, or not launch. Or in some cases, like you, you physically might have to change your name, and people I, th- I think don't notice this um, because all, what we did before we launched is we wrote like five, six blog posts with the name Bush Bomb, and we had it in there, and then our uh, online store it said Bush Bomb, and so when you search Bush Bomb on Google we came up right away. We were we were first to, to the case. But say you launch a business and the name is really competitive for some reason and you're running Facebook ads, you can expect a good number of people go to the ad, they go to your site, they forget about you. And then a couple of days later, they want to search you. They'll search your name on Google or wherever it is. And if you don't come up, then that's a good chunk that you've lost already. So I, that's a pretty key to, to launching that we, we did a good job of, and, but I, I'm, I'm shocked at how often people will miss that because they'll keep their store password on until the day of launch, and then they launch, and Google has no recognition of their, their business at all, so then they don't come up. Um, so yeah, anyways, one small thing that uh, was a pretty big big deal in the early days.
0: Mm -hmm. And I think the fact that you guys were selling skincare for, you know, sensitive areas, pubic oils, um, and it does definitely make you stand out. But what did you do in your marketing that makes users online trust you to actually order your product and actually use it on their skin for those areas?
1: That's, that's really hard for most people, I would say. Um, Because for us, what we realize now, as we're bigger, um, is reviews are are so important. Um, and trust is really, really important. So uh, one early way to combat that and grow it, obviously, the more sales you get, the more reviews you get. That's just one thing. It's great. But if you don't have many sales, you're trying to gain that trust. We actually worked on a lot of UGC videos. So people saying, hey, here's here's a product. It's pretty new. Here's what I use it for and why I love it. So that obviously is a new stamp of approval, right? You've got someone who's a, a real person talking about a the product they've used. So we quickly moved into UGC to, hey, we don't have the reviews yet. We've got a few, but not enough. Let's use UGC to give that proof point. And then as soon as we got into like a, any sort of press, let's put that on our website. It's really important. We want to show that, hey, we are on whatever publication, Um so yeah, it's it's one of those issues when you're first starting out. If you don't have reviews, the world now, believe, like reviews are critical. Um, so that was one way. And then also the other way is I said UGC video. But if you can put some UGC on different things early on, like even your product images, if you can show people using it or whatever that is, that's, that's really big. Um, and we did that at first as UGC and not great photos. And then... As soon as you can do a professional photo shoot with people using the product and holding the product and touching it, that adds one more element of trust. Um, And for us, that was years and years ago. But I would say that was the tipping point of us being okay to us being really successful was very professional lifestyle photos on your product pages. Whereas before we just had beautiful product images we took ourselves. Once we had beautiful lifestyle, it added this new element of okay, th- this is the real deal. This isn't like a new business that's drop shipping or whatever it is. It really gave a sense of a brand is what, what we were after.
0: Mm-hmm. So speaking of user-generated content, um, was it built within your flow that you prompted users to create videos or create images and also have a way to like easily send it back to you guys?
1: No, especially not in the early days. Um, we weren't that sophisticated. <laughs> in the early days, it was like anyone who we thought was interesting or you see you're at a 1,000 followers, you get like a 1,001 and you're like, oh, let's message them. Let's see what they're up to. Let's ask questions. Like, so in the early days, it was super scrappy, ask questions, especially on Instagram, DMs. Um, as we've grown sales and number of followers, everything gets bigger and harder to do in kind of smaller batches. So what we do now, which it's still not manu- or it's still not as fully automated, but we have a great flow that anyone who's purchased at a certain point in this journey, we ask them for before and after photos. We say, hey, would you be interested in doing before and afters? Um, and a lot of people say, yeah, yeah, like really interested. Let me, let me do it. So then they'll just send back, uh, we send them a waiver that they sign and then they send back uh, their first set of photos and then we just keep in contact. Um, But it's not automated in that way. Um, But we do use a platform called Brandbaster, which it's okay. It's a pretty good platform. But there's so many other ones as well um, out there for kind of UGC content. Um, So as we got bigger and scaled more, it got more difficult. So we had to bring on some sort of platform to centralize everything. Um, So we've been doing that for kind of five or six months now. And then we do a lot of these big campaigns with, uh, with gifting, um, whereas like one week, we'll send 100 gifts out. And we'll say, let's send them to these people. Um, and usually it's, hey, we'll send you a gift. Like we love a photo. And we don't even ask for a photo per se or a contract or anything. We just gift it to people that we love their content. And that's that's worked out so well for us. People love... Getting a free gift, and then if they share that kind of thing, it usually leads to good sales on our end.
0: Mm-hmm. And the gifting and the user-generated content taps into like influencer marketing a bit. Um, how do you go about like picking the accounts and the users, and like making sure that this is someone you want to like gift, and also kind of be representing your brand a little bit as well?
1: Yeah. So right now we we have a, an Instagram group, um, which is just our team. And we're all on Instagram. And when we have someone come up, we go, we send it in there and we say, hey, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? So every day it's people bouncing ideas and thoughts around. Um, And then generally we give the thumbs up really quickly. And like in today's day and age, you can look at people and go, okay, they seem great. They represent the brand, their images, everything's great. It's hard to dig deep, deep into archives, what they're doing or something because. Frankly, like getting someone getting canceled, it could that happens obviously. Um, Whereas right now we do a lot with very micro influencers or people that don't even consider themselves influencers, and people with really good content. That's kind of what we care about. And if they have an engaged following, whether it's two thousand people or or more, we just want them to post a beautiful picture about our products because if they post beautiful pictures, they're not going to post one that's not beautiful of our product, right? So. That's on the micro side. And then on the, the large-scale influencer campaigns we've done, that's like much more intense. It's We kind of negotiate price. We ask questions. We want to see um, engagement rates, um, all of those things. And it takes instead of a split second, yeah, they look like they post really good content. It's, it's really a, we do kind of our research and we try to find the top ones who we think would have the biggest impact that can work in our budget. And we go from there. Um so yeah they're they're much more we constantly build a list and we constantly see who could be available and when and then we'll work on specific campaigns with them.
0: That sounds very interesting cuz you know the the bigger the influencer and also the bigger the campaign it's more of a partnership exactly uh, versus just a gifting strategy. Yeah. Yeah. Um so as you scaled um has there been new channels of marketing you've brought on and how do you know like this is the right proportion to invest more in, and these are the new things I want to test out?
1: I guess to answer this question, I'll start with what I think is the right mix for a business like ours early on, and then I'll go into a few other things that are coming up now as we've scaled. Um, So if we go back to early on, what do I think the mix is that you should be thinking about? Um, There's some that I call, in my head, table stakes. So it's not some people say it's a channel. I think it's a channel, but maybe not. It's like email marketing. So as far as table stakes, you should set up your email automation right away. So immediately before you even launch, you should have like your welcome series flow, an abandoned cart, say maybe a a resell or upsell, whatever it is. Make sure to have those because that is what's going to convert a lot of buyers into kind of browsing and looking to converting. So Set up email marketing, to kind of power email marketing, you often have to have a good, compelling um, pop-up or any sort of prospecting tool where you can collect information. Whatever it is, you figure out. Ideally, you want to get a fairly high conversion of people opting in for that. Um, but that's like table stakes, email marketing. Another one that's I consider kind of table stakes, but a lot of people don't, um, is Google search ads and run them for only branded search. So when someone search Bush Bomb, Sweet Escape, or Bush Bomb anything, they will see an ad for Bush Bomb. Um, the reason I call it table stakes is generally, if it's your business and your name, the, search, the cost on those is really low. And what it does for consumers is it, it, it makes them trust you a bit more. Hey, they're running ads in their name. It's great. Um, it ensures you're the top one. Because frankly, as you get bigger and bigger, Amazon, others will run ads for your name. And it's going to happen. So by you doing it early, it's really a defensive mechanism against other people trying to put an ad for your name as you grow. So table stakes, so email marketing, uh, Google search. And then the last one for table stakes, I would say, is just Facebook retargeting. So if you set up, what we do is we have a campaign for just retargeting. And then we have uh, a lifetime value retargeting, so people who've bought already, Um, And then we have dynamic product ads for retargeting as well. So the key with retargeting is you can set it up. And if you get no traffic, it'll spend $0. Because you have no traffic, it can't retarget anyone because no one even exists. So set up the retargeting, make sure the structure is nice. um, And then that's your kind of baseline of what your marketing stack might look like early on. And then now we're going to introduce things like prospecting campaigns. So you could run some on Google ads. You could do, say, campaigns to try to attract people who are in your interest group or whatever it is. Facebook, you could run prospecting campaigns, which is generally what a lot of people will talk about Facebook is what they're doing. So they're running new campaigns to try to lead to new traffic, click-throughs, kind of people to convert. And the key is the kind of the first half I described is that's kind of your funnel built, right? You've got your email, your prospecting, you've got your Google ads. If they search you, you've got the retargeting. So that, that's like the funnel in action. Now you have to feed the funnel and put more people into it. And that's where all your prospecting tools come in with like Facebook is a very obvious one that still, I think, works well, which a lot of people will debate me on right now. Google ads works works quite well. It's quite expensive depending on your category. Snapchat ads we use already right now, and it, it it drives traffic. It doesn't seem to convert, but it's lower cost. Um, and then TikTok is one that's really booming right now and exploding. We we haven't really uh, moved into it yet on the paid side, but we're we're about to.
0: I love it because you gave such a clear description of like building out an initial funnel. So. Um, as you scaled, um, has there been different proportions changing or different investments changing?
1: Yeah, I dove, I, re- I dove so deep into it. I missed the like budget allocation side of it. Um, whereas, yeah, like, so how I would describe budget allocation on certain things is on the organic side of Google, you'll have to up it as you scale. So that one, if you do the branded search only, you'll have to scale it a certain way. And then on Facebook, a rule of thumb that I've kind of run into, which I think is fairly close, is um, about an 80-20 split. So you'll spend about 80% of your budget on prospecting and about 20% of your budget on retargeting. So that proportion, if you kind of keep it relative, it will grow and scale fairly appropriately as long as obviously on Facebook, you need to have a big enough audience to be able to scale up your spend, because if it's too too small, you can't scale up spend. Um, a common mistake people do make with that allocation of, of funds is your Facebook ads for retargeting. Those are the ones that convert. You'll see ROAs, and you're going to be getting money from those. They're converting really well. You're excited. Your prospecting campaigns won't convert much. Like they'll they'll lose. They'll look like they lose money um, generally every time. Whereas if you do the math, you'll go, oh, actually, we're profitable on the entire Facebook strategy, but it only looks profitable on retargeting. It doesn't on on prospecting. But a common mistake people make is instead of spending their money in that 80-20 buffer, they'll see success on retargeting. So what they'll do is they'll spend way more money on retargeting. They'll start to push budget there, push more budget, and then it'll increase uh, the frequency on Facebook ads for your retargeting. So instead of someone seeing ads four times in seven days, they'll see it 12, which for you, it doesn't increase sales at all. It just shows the same ad to the same person twice as much, which is kind of a waste. So you really have to scale up your spend um, and make sure everything matches. So if you scale up prospecting, you probably have to scale up retargeting. If you scale up prospecting, you'll probably have to scale up your branded search slightly. So these things you always have to watch so you can appropriately scale them and often Facebook a good metric to track is frequency so that's how often does someone see your ad within a certain period of time so we always typically look at seven days so if someone in seven days is seeing it two or three times that's like fairly reasonable if they're seeing it like 20 times then your your audience is way too small so you, you should probably spend less or make the audience bigger
0: hmm It's like a constant dance and a balance between so many moving parts. And to your earlier point, you need the prospecting. So you have those people to help a funnel and there's more people so that you can retarget later.
1: Yeah, exactly. And then like the other side of it is email marketing, I find is the easiest one to understand the budget side of it, because as you spend more on prospecting, your email list will grow. And then when your email list grows, you probably have to spend more on email marketing. So, it's just like as you grow, you'll probably just spend slightly more everywhere. Whereas, if email marketing you just stopped spending, you'd you just wouldn't be able to send in any emails. Your email budget wouldn't grow. Like everything just wouldn't work together. So, yeah, it's always this like balancing act of what's working. Spend more there, but also make sure to spend more on everything that complements those things.
0: So we talked a lot about you know that initial funnel and building out that initial marketing stack. Um, how does your marketing strategies look now?
1: Our marketing uh, strategies have certainly changed over the years. So right now, actually, there's lots going on in the world of marketing. So the iOS changes make uh, even just retargeting uh, slightly more difficult. Um, and how we look at retargeting has changed entirely from two or three years ago to now, like entirely changed. Um, How we do email marketing, when you start, generally it's easy to say, we don't have many people, we send an email to everyone. That's changed drastically. Now we have to really target people based on their preference and what they need and what skin concern they're trying to solve. Um, Because people don't want emails that are generic, right? They want emails that target them and, and just help them make the right decisions or content they want to read. So we've gotten as we've gotten bigger we've had to get much more surgical with this type of customer they should really get this information and this type of customer should get offers because they're they haven't bought yet we want to sell them something we're not actually sure. so we've segmented out quite a few different audiences and automations whereas yeah early on it's so easy just to send to everyone and, and hope. Hope it works in in your favor, but uh, yeah we it's changed a lot um and then one random other iOS change that's it's coming I don't know if it it hasn't happened yet is just data and tracking email opens is something that's probably gonna change with kind of Apple devices. So for us, we've now had to think about the data in a different way of our business and what data is it most important to us, and how do we use that that data um So that's one thing if you're not as a business, if you're scaling, um, data will probably become one of your most pressing questions, but not, you know, what data do we have? It'll be, okay, what data do we have and how do we use it um, to benefit us, but also benefit the customer? Um, So, yeah, that's one thing that now is probably one of our biggest priorities is understanding data and how we use it appropriately.
0: What are some tools that helps you analyze data better, and I guess like you know, coordinate between the different channels of not just spend, but also like how much you sell to better understand, and help you in your marketing efforts?
1: Uh, for for that, we're still in say spreadsheets for tracking much of our uh, conversions across different channels. Uh, most of it coming directly out of Google Analytics. So we do use Google Analytics for a lot of a lot of stuff, and one just re- recommendation on on data and kind of keeping it clean is we have a really diligent uh, UTM structure for everything we do. Some people will say UTM is not the way to go, but for us, we've made it really clean for um, email marketing, Facebook ads. So now we can actually see fairly appropriately in our in our kind of weekly reporting we do. Um, so yeah, we do a lot of spreadsheets which are kind of customized. Um, Google Analytics. And then another tool that's free and great is uh, Google Optimize. So we, we've recently just started to use it. And it's good because you can A, B test the same web page um, to another one to see if does the wording matter of this? Can we change it? So we've used it now for uh, a couple of months. And it's been excellent to be able to like actually put data to changing that. Um, and then for us, we use Clavio uh, for a lot of our business, and it's not really a data platform, but the ability to segment lists um, is really important to us, and it's, it's been fairly good to use. Um, some things are learning curves, obviously. Um, and then, yeah, for us, the most intense data we have and tooling we use is definitely on the supply chain side. Um, So we're in the process of implementing an ERP to help us manage the business side of supply chain. Um, And that is just so we don't sell out, which as a fast-growing DTC brand is going to be, if your marketing is running quickly and you have a big win, the supply chain side has to quickly be able to to kind of follow through
0: you also mentioned uh, reviews a while back i wanted to know what kind of tools you were using to kind of make uh customers leaving review really easy and like just helpful prompts that will generate more reviews for you guys
1: yeah so reviews we use uh stamped but yacht is good there's a lot of different ones and then there's a review software now that does syndication of reviews to retailers so as we've gotten bigger, that's become something on our radar that we have to implement. Um, but as far as doing reviews, looking at what time frame works best for you. So how often they open the email at certain days and testing the thresholds of, of reviews. We've done that quite a few times. Testing different headers um, in the emails for reviews is important. Um, but yeah, like the number one thing for reviews is if you don't have a review software that lets them place the review in their email you're not going to get many reviews placed. Um, that is just just—it seems to be a universal truth. The easier you can make that process, the better, and most of the review apps will do that for you. Um, and the other thing with reviews and UGC and technology is we've tried to build that into our um, email automation to ask questions and get feedback um, because, frankly, people often don't want to go to some tool to do something. They don't want to open a spreadsheet. They don't want to fill out a form. They want to just reply back to an email. So for us, we, we have a lot of not a lot of people, but we do prioritize that and have people manage our customer service much more intently than uh, you'd probably expect. We have uh, people who, who manage. And we ask for, for feedback, and we get it in email instead of sending out some sort of survey, um, which we, we do once a year. But this is like an everyday thing. We're always getting feedback.
0: For all of the digital campaigns, there's always, you mentioned such a great feedback loop, you can know what your cost per purchase is. Is there like internal guidelines that you guys follow where you feel like this is the limit, we don't really want to go beyond this cost per acquisition? Or do you guys test out different channels and see how they are before setting limits for yourself?
1: So what I would say is a lot of people call it like blended ROAS or blended CAC. And what we do is the spreadsheet we use is we track all the data to really, truly understand how successful we are. Um, So like each week we'll know, okay, we spent this much on ads. This is how much we um, got back in sales. But also here's our cost of product and here's like our profitability. So we actually look at that all the time to know if we have any room to move budgets up or down. And we react according to these numbers. Um, and just like another thing we do is at a glance in your Facebook ads manager or whatever it is, if there's a metric that you use as a benchmark, that's really helpful to be able to quickly do things up and down. Um, but the weekly, if you're not doing weekly reporting on, say, profitability or spend, um, you're gonna miss a lot. So we, we do that every single week. It kicks off our, our Tuesday morning call. Um, and then we can say, let's up budget, let's lower, lower budget, let's test this, let's spend more on Google and this campaign. So it, it gives us uh, kind of the leeway to do that. And yeah, otherwise, we would kind of maybe just aimlessly be spending.
0: Let's talk about marketing outside of the digital world. Have you guys experimented with traditional media or reaching out to different publications and what have you experimented outside of the digital side?
1: So we've done a little bit on the on the press side. So we've worked with a few kind of media outlets to just we send product, work with publicists and the other thing we've done is we've just brought on an agency for a PR agency, and they're going to work with kind of different uh, channels to to grow. So that that's a priority of ours is connect with the right agency and have them help get more in the press. Especially as we launch new products, it'll be more important. Um, but yeah, in the early days, we've experimented mostly around just reaching out, connecting, sending free products to the right people so they can try it. Um, the other thing that we've done which i think helps is we've done some promotions with wholesale spas and a lot of that is we'll just send them an order but we'll we'll do a promotion where we add an extra five bottles or ten bottles to say hey let's do a giveaway together um that's actually driven a lot of traffic to our, our site which is good um and it's very efficient right you just connect with people you already know or sell your product. um but yeah, traditionally, we've only done a little bit of PR. We're about to do a lot more.
0: Let's talk about initially reaching out to publications because I think a lot of people get intimidated on how to find you know, editors or writers to reach out to. And then when they do find someone's email, how do you go about pitching yourself and talking about your business and your product?
1: So it'll be odd to say, but um, a lot of that world is, is relationship-driven now. Um, so if you don't have the relationship... Um, a cold email is going to be difficult to work. So, um, for us, it was okay. Who do we know that might have relationships? Who do we know that we can work through or connect with or somehow meet the right person to help us get into this publication or or just even talk to the right person? Um, because yeah, like you're you're right. Like cold emails to someone who you don't have a relationship is going to be difficult. Um, whereas you should really think about how do I sell. Um, my idea to anyone so that they go, you know what, that's really interesting. And I know someone who also could benefit from just either sharing the idea or being a part of it. So I I would say you're probably going to do some cold emails and um, rejection is great. You're going to learn from it, Um, but try to connect as much as you can on a relationship level versus Asking someone to write about you, it could be, hey, we'd love to send you free product, um, no hassle. Don't have to write about us. We just we're just trying to get kind of on the radar, like that kind of thing. Um, because yeah, if, if you're cold emailing, it's it's a tough a tough thing to to sell yourself, just because people don't either read them or it's not as compelling enough.
0: And I think this is from like my experience of learning a lot about businesses and seeing them approach us, but I think when you mentioned about beautiful lifestyle photos that you guys have helped um, with marketing strategies, that actually helps a lot with publications because they'll see that you have beautiful media assets and it'll make it easier for them to write about you and also showcase you guys.
1: Yeah, totally, totally. And we see that uh, as well for things like uh, retail and, and influencers. So the more professional you can be online with your website um, the more likely they'll go oh this is the real deal they're ready to rock Um, so for us we're actually getting a new website built uh, right now we're in the process and it's going to be we're saying get us get us to the big leagues because it's going to be like a beautiful website beautiful photography beautiful layout Um, and that will hopefully do do wonders for not just like on-site conversion but perception of, say, a press article seeing our site, they'll go, wow, this is really nice. Like, I love what they're doing. This messaging is great. Um, So yeah, no, totally. I uh, don't have not great photos. That's kind of the moral of the story.
0: For your PR agency that you guys are partnering with, when you were searching for this agency, how did you go about the search? And what were you looking for in this partnership?
1: So the, the search worked out as we tried to find um, just kind of the agencies in our space, and we wrote them down, and then we contacted many that. So for us, it was kind of a cold contact, um, which we didn't know. And then we also reached out to a few people in our industry who gave us other contacts. So um, what I've realized, too, as you grow, um, not even for press, media, but for employees, for anyone you partner with, the more referrals you can have to someone and someone says, hey, this is a trusted PR agency, we used them for two years, and then we moved on because of this reason, whatever it is, that is, to me, it's always been a better better way to go. So even a manufacturer, hey, we've used this manufacturer, they're excellent. Like that testimonial from someone I know goes a long way. And in the end, we've had the most success by working with people we trust, who others have recommended. Um, so, yeah, I, w- I would go that approach um, and ask. Ask people in the industry hey, who do, who do you use for this? Um, Twitter is a good place. There's a lot of people on there who have great connections, who are always recommending them because maybe their connection actually is looking for more business to scale up and you might be the perfect fit. So, I would reach out and use your network for sure.
0: Mm-hmm. And at what stage were you guys comfortable, both financially and also business wise, to say, you know, we actually need to go external. We can't handle PR on our own anymore. We need outside help, essentially.
1: So it was uh, earlier this year as we've gotten to this stage where we're growing a lot and we've we just hit over 100,000 followers on Instagram, which is kind of an interesting metric. But the next stage for us is we're launching kind of a new website to really get into the next level. Um, We're introducing a bunch of great new products um, at the end of this year. We're really excited to bring all of those out. And we're at the cusp of many retailers, Urban Outfitters, Indigo. They just reached out to us. And we're on the cusp of being ready for many larger retailers. And large retail, um, and also just our website in general, but large retail... Um, they want to see more press. They want to see you getting featured. They want to see you in the media. They want to see articles written about you because it benefits Bomb as a company. But also the retailers who are selling it, they, they're proud to show, hey, we sell this product. Here's a product located in whatever retailer. So we're taking it really seriously to do kind of all the things that a large retailer wants from us um, and would expect. We're building all these things. So when we launch in these large retailers... It's big news, everyone's excited, the products are selling out, um, you can see the hottest trends in whatever publication, now available in. So that's the strategy we're going with. Whereas in the early days, we didn't have the extra capital to, to scale it. Whereas now, um, we're just investing more into the, essentially, I would call it a press. is It's great for every aspect of the business. But it's also a great sales tool to sell us into certain retailers because they can now see the buzz, the excitement around our business, which is that's really what we want.
0: And I think a lot of the times digital, there is that immediate feedback loop of seeing how things perform and that might get more addictive to keep on investing. PR, press, all that stuff, you can't really see the results right away. So has there been any internal discussions or mental hurdles that you have to overcome to be like, we, we kind of have to like invest and see and let it do its thing and just like kind of trust the process?
1: Yeah, there's for sure mental hurdles, and it's the same hurdles you have for influencer marketing. Because um, you could do a like examples, you could pay an influencer ten grand, and not know what it's going to bring back. And you could think, "Ooh, I think, I think it's going to be successful." Um, whereas what what we did, we got to a point where we said, "Okay, every single month, there's a budget set aside for influencer marketing. There's a budget every single month. It's." what we are going to try new partnerships and new things with. So it's there. And then giving that to the team to say, hey, see what you can do with this and try and experiment and learn. That worked out so well because they found opportunities and partners that were excellent. Whereas if we didn't say that it was available, every time they would have been maybe hesitant, they would have said, hey, we have this opportunity, should we do it? Now it's like, team, go out and do it. Like You have the, you have the, this budget, spend it, understand it, learn from it, and grow. So that was a hurdle that took a while to get over. And the press side is the same. We're saying, okay, we're setting this aside because we think it's long-term for us, really important, but right now, we're probably not going to see the results, so we've got to understand that. And it's just a, a hurdle to say, okay, let's do that. We've set it aside. Hopefully, it works out. But influencers are the same, like hopefully it works out. Generally, you can see a quick turnaround on it, but still. In the early days, I remember for five years, we, not to say we we're too scared to do influencer marketing, but we just didn't, you'd say, oh, someone would say it's five, $500 for a post. And we think, oh no, like how many do we have to sell? Will we sell them? Um, it, it became difficult to validate it early, early on.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now looking back five, six years under the belt, has there been any big moments where you're like, you know what, this was a campaign or this was something that we tried that really took us to the next level?
1: Hmm. There, there's been a few big moments um, around like press we've gotten, which has been really helpful and exciting as well. Um, as far as uh, campaigns, there's been a few uh, influencer campaigns that have been wildly successful, um, and most of that has been people with just awesome audiences. So they, first off, you want to build a great product, and then the next piece is you want to get that product to people who, who need it and want to use it. So if an influencer needs our product, wants to use it, um, and then the third thing is they love it. Like, now you're building this thing where it's like a genuine connection to our product line. And then the last piece is them posting and doing it. So genuine. Um, Their audience is engaged with what they're going through, what they're talking about. And it's usually a great success. So that's kind of the the piece that's made a few of these big influencer ones work. Um, But probably the most valuable thing to the company has been less about one-offs and more about finding or positioning for advertising and landing pages. If if we find our advertising positioning and it, it works, then we just keep doing it and you can scale significantly. So I would say it's less about the flashy campaign this time it launched, it was two days, whatever it is. It's more about what are the things you do that sustain for the longest period and are the most successful those have had the big biggest impact on the business
0: Mm -hmm. and i think like a lot of that also has to do with like how well you guys adapt and fine-tune with those things as well like with the long-term strategies
1: yeah exactly and like learning you're going to learn every step of the way and whether it's Facebook ads, something new works, something new doesn't. You learn each each step and you just get better as you, as you get bigger
0: and bigger. Awesome. Well, I feel like we've talked so much about different aspects of marketing. Um, is there any advice you want to give for people starting out and um, they're approaching their first marketing efforts?
1: I suppose advice I would give someone who's just starting out and just trying it is take what you're doing with maybe this lens of, education. So a lot of people go to school, they do different things. But for me, learning something hands-on is the best way to ever grow a skill. So e-commerce is this up-and-coming, beautiful industry. There's so much opportunity. So if you're going into this this marketing role or you're starting a business, even if it doesn't work out, you will have a new skill set. And that's that's how I approached it early on. And Now looking back, it's been so fantastic because now I can talk about all these different things Um, in an interview or whatever you're doing. It's hard to talk about Facebook ads when you've never done them. So if you've done a few, you've tried it, that skill will go a long way into whether it's keeping a successful endeavor now or a future endeavor. So always look at marketing with the lens of I'm going to get better as kind of a human being through this and I'll always have these skills in my back pocket as you learn them.
0: Awesome. I love it. The learning lens.
1: Yeah, right on.
0: All right. So thanks for tuning in to this episode. Um, Next time, we're going to tackle all things finances.